So thank you everybody for coming. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Roy Brower, who's director of the MICU at Hopkins and uh, led the low tidal volume and alveoli studies on the ARDSnet and has been the PI of the local ARDSnet consortium. Um, and has, well, I could give, go on, but why don't I let Dr. Brower speak? Um, thank, thank you for the invitation to come and give, us, give this talk. Um, I think, uh, let me add to what Carl was saying. Um, Carl, Carl and I have been collaborating continuously since, I guess, 1992, I think. And importantly, uh, one of the first things we did was um, a pilot trial of lower tidal volume ventilation. That was done in four hospitals here in Baltimore. And that, that trial, I think, is one of the most important things we ever did because we proved to ourselves that we could do clinical research in a critical care environment, that you could take control over a ventilator, that our colleagues would support us. And we learned a lot how to do the protocol better than what we designed. And we ultimately um, were able to sell that idea to the ARDS network. Um, and we did that larger clinical trial. So we have a long history of collaboration. and. Uh, we're still collaborating, and I look forward to continuing it and maybe expanding our collaboration to other ICUs. In the last 10 or 15 years, there have been numerous clinical trials of um, management strategies for ARDS. And those trials give us some guidance for how to manage this problem. But um, we frequently are left in a situation where the trials really don't guide us. And we sort of live on the edge of the evidence. I like to use that expression, on the edge of the evidence. Um, and when we're treating severe ARDS with profound hypoxemia or severe hypercarbia or very high airway pressures, that's where the clinical trials don't really tell us what to do. They, they, they might suggest something to do, but the, uh, the evidence out of those clinical trials is really for managing the mainstream cases, not the ones that are challenging. So today I, I'm going to give you some thoughts about managing these very challenging situations. Um, and, and these are my thoughts. Um, keep that in mind. We're, we're on the edge of the evidence. We frequently have to make it up as we go along. So to get this started, let's think about a, a patient I had in the ICU um, a, a year or two ago, a 60-year-old man with pneumonia, bilateral opacifications, ARDS. Um, on the first day after intubation, his, he was at a tidal volume of six milliliters per, kilo, per kilogram, predicted body weight, PEEP of 10, FiO2 60%, as you see there, and his plateau pressure of 29. But on day three, he, he, he had worsened. His tidal volume is down to four. PEEP is higher, FiO2 is higher. Plateau is now 32 to 34, and his PCO2 is 84. And he's become pretty acidotic. So this is, this is a challenging case. What are we, what are we gonna do with this guy? Um, we'll come back to him in a minute. So evidence-based evidence approaches to mechanical ventilation. Um, you know, we have this volume and pressure limited approach, which has been accepted by, by most people, uh, including by researchers who have designed subsequent clinical trials of higher PEEP, ECMO, and so on. Um, so we have a tidal volume goal of six. 
uh, and we, we <clears throat> calibrate that according to a predicted body weight. And we want the inspiratory plateau pressure to, to be below 30. If it exceeds 30, then we will lower the tidal volume to 5 or even to 4, trying to get that plateau below 30. So that's the mainstream, the centerpiece of our ARDS ventilator management protocol. That's, I think we have the strongest evidence favoring this. So uh, there's additional evidence favoring some level of PEEP. There's a strong consensus that we should use a minimum level of PEEP of five. The French higher PEEP study, known as EXPRESS, uh, raised PEEP until the plateau was in the range of 28 to 30, and this was associated with more ventilator-free days. And I think that's a reasonable approach. Um, and then Matthew Briel analyzed the three negative higher PEEP approaches, as, uh, higher PEEP protocols, and in a meta-analysis, and he suggested that higher PEEP was useful uh, in patients with a P to F ratio less than 200. One clinical trial favors the use of neuromuscular blockade for 48 hours in patients with P to F ratios less than 150, uh, and now we have a, a large clinical trial in a meta-analysis that recommends, supports the use of prone positioning for, for patients with a P to F ratio below 100. So I think that these practices are also supported by substantial evidence. Um, and then there's, there are lower levels of evidence that suggest that we should be interested in and maybe use additional approaches such as esophageal manometry, recruitment maneuvers, and so on. Um, let's go back to our, our patient. This is the same patient we talked about a minute ago. The challenge here is... Um, is that he's already on a, a very low tidal volume at four. Plateau pressure is above 30. He's quite hypercarbic and acidemic. What are we going to do about that plateau pressure of 32 to 34? What can we do? Um, again, this is, this is the centerpiece of the lower tidal volume protocol. These are the data from that ARDS network tidal volume trial. Um, as we said before, tidal volume goal of six, plateau pressure greater than 30, decrease the tidal volume as low as four if necessary to get the plateau below 30, uh, to get it below 30. But what are we going to do now? We're already at four, um, and the plateau is still above 30. Another, I think, relevant question here is how high really is too high for plateau pressure? You know, 30 was kind of an arbitrary value. You know, in, in another lecture, we can talk about where did 30 come from. It's interesting to think about where it came from. Um, but there, just because we use a plateau pressure limit of 30 in that protocol doesn't mean that we had good reason to think below 30 was safe. And in fact, there are some studies now, at least three that I know of, that strongly suggest that plateau pressures lower than 30 are better than 30. You know, 25 is better than 27, 27 is better than 29. What, what is the lower limit for a safe plateau pressure? Incidentally, if, if we measured your plateau pressure as you breathe at rest in the upright position, your plateau pressure would be about five. You know, we, we never measure plateau pressures in normal people at rest, so you, you may lose sight of what's normal. So 20, which most people are comfortable with, is really quite elevated compared to normal. So what is a safe limit for plateau pressure? Don't really know. Um, 
And it's complicated. There's no single one good answer to that question because plateau pressure is affected by several different things, not just stress in the lungs. Now here's a sketch of, of lungs and chest wall on the left, end expiration, the pressure in the lung is PEEP, and then inspiration, the pressure inside the lung is the plateau pressure. Um, it is the mean alveolar pressure at end inspiration. It is the mean distending pressure of the respiratory system. And the term distending maybe should be uh, um, addressed there. It's just the pressure on the inside of the system, right? Now, what we're really interested in is how much stress is there in the lungs. But this is telling us distending, the pressure necessary to distend, to distend both the lungs and the chest wall. And this is sometimes very relevant and an important consideration. And this image is usually shown by the sleep people. Um, but I show it here just to make the point that here's a patient whose plateau pressure would be higher than five as he's sitting at rest breathing uh, with the normal ventilation. It's higher than five because his chest wall has a lot of weight and elasticity to it. So these patients um, can have relatively high plateau pressures even though the lungs are not under a lot of stress. This is the uh, chest x-ray on the patient who I presented to you. He weighed about 220 kilograms, a big guy, um, and there was a lot of pressure from his lung, from his chest wall that was affecting that plateau pressure. The plateau pressure that I told you was 32 to 34. We measured his bladder pressure and it was about 18. So knowing that there was some contribution of abdominal pressure and chest wall weight to that plateau pressure, we let it alone. We, we didn't worry about it. We, we let it be at 32 to 34. So sometimes, um, we feel like our back is against the wall to do something about a high plateau pressure. Uh, and the first thing I think to myself is, can I find an excuse not to have to address it? Because if you go below four milliliters per kilogram, you're gonna get severe hypercapnia. I mean, even at four, you frequently have severe hypercapnia. His PCO2 is 84. You go below four, uh, it's just gonna get worse. So in this case, we had an out, an excuse not to address that high plateau pressure. We just left it alone. To make a long story short, he did, rec he did recover. Now here's another patient who gives us an excuse not to address uh, high plateau pressure. He's got a lot of ascites and some gaseous distension. Here's a patient whose abdomen is very distended just with gas, high plateau pressure, but with radiographically, his lungs were normal. So the whole reason for his high plateau pressure was a very distended abdomen. This is, a, this is a young man who was born at 26 weeks gestation, and he survived, uh, but he was developmentally uh, very, very impaired. And he was admitted to our ICU with uh, respiratory failure. Maybe he had a little pneumonia, but not much. But um, the point here is this is a CT image, and um, you can actually see six vertebrae on one horizontal cut through his chest. So he, he has severe um, scoliosis, and that is making his chest wall stiff, and his plateau pressure was elevated, even though he does, does not have extensive lung disease. You see something in the right lower lung field, uh, but the rest of his lungs were pretty good. So again, um, we, we didn't address a high plateau pressure in this patient because we believed it was primarily from his lungs. 
Um, here's a patient who has a high plateau pressure because the tidal volume is going entirely, entirely into his, his right lung. The, the main stem bronchus is in too far. Um, here's a patient with a high plateau pressure um, with small lungs, uh, small and not diseased lungs. And his excuse, obviously, is those large pleural effusions. He does have some atelectasis, compressive atelectasis. Uh, but these lungs, despite a high pressure that we're measuring, they're not under a lot of stress. So we don't have to adjust the tidal volume here. What we do need to adjust is the amount of fluid in his chest. And here, obviously, is uh, a big pneumothorax that, um, that will cause the plateau pressure to be high. And as soon as we fix that, plateau pressure will not be high. Now, here's one other, um, one other way that the plateau pressure appears to be high. Um, and typically, when we do a plateau pressure, the airway pressure comes down and to a nice smooth plateau, but in this case, the airway pressure comes down and then starts to go back up. And what's going on here is that this patient is, is making an expiratory effort. He's resisting the idea that we're holding air in his lungs. He wants to get it out. Um, and if you don't look at the tracing and you just accept what's reported on the flow sheet, then you may not appreciate that this is a falsely high plateau pressure. All right, the true plateau pressure is, is, is no higher than that, probably a little bit lower. So one more, one more reason why plateau pressure may, may be reported as high, um, but we don't need to react to that by lowering tidal volume. So interpreting a high plateau pressure, just summarizing what we've been saying, um, Obesity can, can affect plateau pressure from the, the weight of all that adipose tissue, uh, and in some instances, um, increased elasticity or decreased compliance of the chest wall itself. Also, because obesity uh, makes you breathe at low lung volumes, it can alter surfactant function in the lungs in such a way that the lungs become less compliant. But we don't have to react to uh, elevated plateau pressures when they're primarily due to obesity. Abdominal distension, skeletal deformities, expiratory efforts, all of these things, pleural effusions, pneumothorax, all of these things can cause a high plateau pressure um, and, um, and, and can fool us sometimes into thinking a patient needs something that he doesn't. But at the end of the day, if we rule out all of these things, we may be stuck with this problem, that uh, the high plateau pressure is is telling us that there's a lot of stress and strain in, in the lung. Uh, and so what do we do about that? It, once again, uh, returning to the theme of living on the edge of the evidence, the, the clinical trials, the tidal volume trial, the higher PEEP trials, none of the trials really told, tell us what to do with a patient who doesn't have any of those problems, obesity, deformity of the chest wall, and so on, but does have a high plateau pressure, uh, even on a very small tidal volume. Uh, so, we're on the edge of the evidence. We have to use our knowledge of physiology, epidemiology, what we think we've learned from our previous experiences, uh, and then take an educated guess and do something. So uh, I'm going to tell you a few thoughts I have about managing a patient with a high plateau pressure on a low tidal volume and who doesn't have any of those other excuses. Um, my, my first thought is decrease the PEEP. In fact, I think this is my best idea, I'm telling it to you first. Um, this will not sit well with the open lung enthusiasts. They think we need to use higher PEEP. Um, 
This here is the, uh, the PEEP and FiO2 table that was used in the ARDS network tidal volume trial. Um, and it was used as the control group in the ARDS network higher PEEP trial. The Canadians used a very similar table to this. So these are fixed combinations of PEEP and FiO2. Um, and as oxygenation worsens, we move to the right using progressively higher levels of PEEP and FiO2. And when oxygenation improves, we move to the left. So in some patients, when you raise PEEP, you get a lot of recruitment. And that's, so PEEP's doing what you're supposed to be doing. In other patients, when you raise PEEP, hardly anything happens. And so you move further to the right to raise FiO2. And so some of the concern with a table like this is that you have a patient who doesn't respond to PEEP and in order to get a higher FiO2, you have to first raise the PEEP. So for example, if we're on a PEEP of five in 40% and the O2 set is 85%, we have to go to a PEEP of eight and 40% and then we can go to 50%. So in the patients who don't respond, um, this table forces us to use higher levels of PEEP just to get to higher FiO2s. So if we're on a PEEP of 14 or 16, I think there's a good chance this is a patient who doesn't respond to PEEP. But we're all, all the way over here to the right on this table. So lower the PEEP. If, this, if I'm right about this, if this patient is not a responder, then oxygenation will hardly change when you lower PEEP. But plateau pressure will come down a bunch. You know, this, this represents two different kinds of patients that I was talking about, the PEEP responders and the non-responders. There's a tendency for patients with more diffuse uh, distribution of the opacifications to be responders. So this is a CT scan on zero end expiratory pressure. Raise PEEP, you get a lot of recruitment, but little over distension. In contrast, in this patient in whom the opacifications are primarily distributed in the dorsal regions, when you raise PEEP, you get little recruitment, you get a lot of over-distension. So I think if you're, you're already on a high PEEP, there's a good chance this is the kind of patient you're dealing with. Um, and if you lower the PEEP, um, you'll lose little by way of oxygenation, but the plateau pressure will come down a bunch. The reason it comes down a bunch is because if you're on a high PEEP, there's a good chance this is where you are, that's the tidal volume, on the airway pressure volume relationship. Right? You're on the, this bending over part of the curve where the compliance is low. And if you lower the PEEP, you'll wind up on the steeper part of the curve um, where the compliance is high. And so the decrease in the plateau pressure will be substantially greater than the decrease in PEEP. So first idea, decrease the PEEP. See what happens. Incidentally, there's a report in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine about five years ago by a, an Italian group led by Salvador Grasso, where they showed that in 15 patients, all of whom had a relatively focal distribution of opacifications, they put the patients first on the, on the ARDS network lower PEEP table, and then they assessed the patients for inflammation and lung mechanics and so on, and they wound up lowering the PEEPs in all of these 15 patients oxygenation did not deteriorate, dead space did go down, PCO2 came down, compliance went up, inflammation went down. So these patients who don't recruit, 
Um, they need lower levels of PEEP, lower even than what's on the ARDS network, lower PEEP table. My next suggestion is just accept a plateau pressure of 30 to 40. Right? We'd love the plateau to be lower than 30, but we're already at a tidal volume of four. Um, keep in mind that although lower tidal volume was better than traditional tidal volume in that ARDS network study, 60% of patients survived on a, on a generous tidal volume. So just because the plateau is 32 to 34 doesn't mean death is, a, is certainly going to happen. You know, the alternatives are not all that, that, um, all that savory, um, except in my, I think, maybe just lower the PEEP. You can lower the tidal volume to less than four, but you know, you're really past the edge of the evidence. You know, none of the studies went to a tidal volume below four. You know, this, Network trials suggested lower was better than traditional, but we never went below four milliliters per kilogram. Maybe you should go below four. If you do, as I said before, hypercapnia will be severe. You know, in our patient that I presented to you, PCO2 is 84 on four milliliters per kilogram. Uh, and at this point, um, every decrease in tidal volume is going to come out of a very small alveolar ventilation. So PCO2 will start rising exponentially. But look at this. This is from Keith Hickling's report in intensive care medicine. 50 patients who he managed with a lower tidal volume approach. Not a, not a randomized controlled trial, just a case series report. But it was this, this report that got a lot of people thinking. In fact, Carl Shanholtz and I looked at this report together and we said, we got to study this. So, on the right here are values of PCO2. On the left, it's P to F ratios. We don't need to look at these now. Um, this column are people who survived. This column are people who died. Um, and notice there are five PCO2s above 70, uh, two of which came in patients who died, three of whom were in patients who lived, including this one whose PCO2 is over 130. So maybe we should lower the tidal volume below four and accept severe hypercapnia. You, you may know that there are some studies and experimental models that strongly suggest that hypercapnia with acidosis is actually protective against oxidant-induced lung injury. It can be protective against ventilator-induced lung injury. It's protective against hydrochloric acid-induced lung injury. So maybe we should push, the, push, the, push past the envelope of the evidence and go a little lower on tidal volume. So, but how, how, how do we know when we're pushing it too hard? Um, these are things that I look for when I'm on the edge and trying to think what else can I do? Should I accept more hypercapnia or have we gone too far? And I think when the heart rate is accelerating, the respiratory rate obviously is, uh, is very rapid. The blood pressure is, is high. Patients are agitated, diaphoretic. You know, the, these things suggest to me that the patient is under stress. There are some patients who will have a PCO2 of 84 like my patient, and they don't seem to mind. Other patients, they, they mind. You, know, you, you see these things, they're jumping out of bed. Um, and I think it's, it's telling us that there's a lot of stress to the whole system, not just to the lungs. PO2 is seldom the reason why you should back off on hypercapnia. But when hypercapnia gets severe, and especially if there's a lot of shunt, then, then it can be difficult to maintain PO2 as well.
maybe we should use high-frequency ventilation. Maybe not. As you know, we were very interested in it here until just the last few years. We, we've done some research on it. Um, but these two trials appeared in the New England Journal um, about a little more than a year ago. On the top, the Canadian trial. On the bottom, the uh, trial in the UK. Large randomized trials in which patients received either high frequency or a um, traditional approach. In the uh, Canadian trial, the traditional approach was lower tidal volume, like an ARDS network, although they used a higher PEEP approach than we, than we used. And in the uh, UK trial, the, the control group was usual care, um, where tidal volumes were not controlled and were, were higher than what was used in the Canadian trial. So here are the results of the, uh, the UK trial. Uh, two lines almost concurrent with each other, no difference in the survival experience. Um, and in the Canadian trial, they actually stopped it early because it appeared that high frequency was harmful. Um, interesting to think about why it appeared to be harmful here, but equivalent here and in the UK trial. And one, one possible explanation is that um, the Canadians controlled tidal volume in the control group um, and that was good, whereas the, uh, the Brits did not control tidal volume, and some tidal volumes we know were, were higher, and so high frequency didn't look worse because conventional wasn't as good. One possible explanation. So we, we don't use high frequency ventilation in my ICU hardly anymore. We, we got discouraged while we were doing the research trial on it uh, because when we started looking hard at patients on high frequency, what was obvious is they were getting a boatload of sedation um, in order to keep them from sucking air out of the ventilator. Um, and that sedation, combined with high mean airway pressures, was making them hypotensive. And then they were getting volume loaded. Um, and volume loading and heavy sedation and neuromuscular blockade, these are all things that are going against the grain. That we're trying to go in the opposite direction. So. So we've backed off on uh, high frequency. Um, I think in the past year it's been used maybe just a few times in desperation uh, and uh, maybe have a little bit of fun. But we're, we're discouraged with it. You know, I think um, <clears throat> you know, everything we do, there's a risk and a benefit. <clears throat> and we've come to appreciate that the risk of high sedation, high mean airway pressures, uh, is probably outweighing the benefit of using a very small tidal volume. Here's one other idea that was out there about 10 or 15 years ago, um, and maybe we should resurrect it. This is a sketch of um, trachea, mainstem bronchi, endotracheal tube, cuff, the blue, blue ellipses, the cuff. During exhalation, the trachea and mainstem bronchi and ET tube fill with um, alveolar gas, which has CO2 in it. Um, and then during the next inspiration, that that dead space with the CO2 in it, it gets, that gas gets pushed back in. And so um, it's a little inefficient. And when you have a patient on a small tidal volume, um, the dead space like this can hurt. So one, one idea for improving this is tracheal gas insufflation. There's a catheter inserted through the trachea, uh, in this instance, in advanced to almost to the tip of the carina. Um, and fresh gas is flushed through this, um, 
and it, during exhalation, the dead space gas in the trachea and to some extent the large bronchi, it gets flushed back out through the endotracheal tube. Uh, so this reduces dead space and it can lower arterial PCO2. Here are uh, data from an experimental model in which um, we see catheter flow rate uh, and the change in PCO2 or percent change in PCO2. In this case, the catheter tip is, uh, is proximally located near the tip of the endotracheal tube. And, uh, and this other line refers to the experience when the catheter tip is advanced further to the carina. So at a catheter flow rate of about six liters per minute, we can get a decrease in the PCO2 of about 15 to 20%. So if, if we did this in my patient with a PCO2 of 84, uh, the, the PCO2 might decrease by 12 or 14 millimeters of mercury. Um, is that worthwhile? I, I don't know. Um, there was a lot of interest in this, um, this approach, as I said before, in the um, 1990s and early 2000s. I know there was a piece of equipment for doing this um, marketed in Europe, but it never made it here to the U.S., um, and I think maybe interest died off because of these um, modest effects of tracheal gas insufflation on the arterial PCO2. Um, but maybe we should resurrect it for patients with the, the worst, worst problems with um, hypercapnia. And one more thought about managing the patient with a high plateau pressure is to use extracorporeal gas exchange. This piece of equipment, um, I think that's a Nova lung. It doesn't require a mechanical pump. Blood flows through it under the force of arterial pressure, uh, returns to a vein. Uh, this piece of equipment, uh, because of its simplicity, it's a, I think it's of some interest. Um, and, and in the context of a high plateau pressure and high PCO2, um, you, can, you can clear approximately 50% of a patient's PCO2 with this. It does very little for oxygenating. And for that reason, it's generally not the piece of equipment of choice. But extracorporeal gas exchange, maybe, uh, maybe we should be doing that on, on my patient. As I told you, he survived, and we didn't do extracorporeal. All right, so I, I think, um, I know you do a lot of extracorporeal gas exchange, so maybe you don't need to see these diagrams that Dan Brody published in his New England Journal article. Uh, but I think one of the points that Dan makes is that although clinical trials in the past were disappointing, the technology has improved, you know, including now you can sometimes achieve venovenous ECMO with a single venipuncture in the neck, a double lumen catheter positioned near the, um, the right atrium. So improved technology, you know, better pumps, gentler on the red blood cells and platelets, requires less anticoagulation. And as experience accumulates at centers like this, it's probably getting safer. And maybe, um, maybe this technology is, has a future for managing some ARDS patients. So where do we stand with extracorporeal gas exchange? Um, I think there's a strong rationale for using it in a patient like this. Uh, this, this by the way, believe it or not, is lungs. You know, you can see the right upper lobe bronchus here, but these lungs are totally co 
collapsed, filled with inflammatory debris, edema, and so on. So there's no gas exchange uh, in these lungs. Extracorporeal gas exchange can keep some gas exchange going, and hopefully um, something can be reversed here. So very strong rationale. Uh, never doubted the rationale um, for using extracorporeal gas exchange in a patient with severely impaired uh, gas exchange. <clears throat> All right, strong rationale. As you know, disappointing previous randomized clinical trials, Warren Zapol's and then Alan Morris's. But as I said, the technology is improving, substantial experience accumulating at some centers, and some encouraging but uncontrolled recent experiences at some centers. And I'd like to look at, um, at one of these. I, I know of three reports like this, case series of patients with severe um, ARDS from H1N1 influenza, uh, an encouraging case series reports. This is the one from Australia and New Zealand. 68 patients, severely depressed PDF ratio on a fair amount of PEEP, acute lung injury score of 3.8, the maximum you can get is 4. Mortality rate, 25%. That sounds very good. Um, it is good. Um, but keep in mind that the patients who they uh, did this on were young, 34 years of age with the intercorrectile range being what you see here, and, and that's young. You know, ARDS network trials, the average ages are, are in the mid-50s. Um, and they reported that only 8% of these 68 patients had, had a, a one or more Apache 3 comorbidity, such as COPD, HIV, liver failure. Right, so these are young single organ disease patients. Um, and we love those patients, right? We, we have a low mortality rate on those patients without ECMO. Um, I don't, this is pretty severe. Maybe I shouldn't be so confident that we can do the same without ECMO. But I think uh, we need better studies than this uh, to embrace ECMO and start doing it um, with confidence. Russ Miller, um, he, he had an, AR, uh, an ARDS from H1N1 registry. Uh, this was part of ARDS network. Identified 570 patients. Um, 79 of them, that's 570 with H1N1 in, in the ICUs. 79 patients would have been eligible for ECMO according to previously published criteria. We don't know, by the way, the criteria that the Australians and New Zealanders used. They didn't really tell us. Presumably it was severe in some form, you know, very low PDF ratio, requirement for high, high FiO2 and PEEP for some period of time, but we don't really know. But, uh, but Russ identified 79 patients who, were, who would have been eligible according to other previously published uh, criteria. Uh, and this included older patients and younger patients and many patients who had comorbid conditions. Um, and the mortality rate was 36%, right? Not that bad. It's not quite as low as 25% as with the Australians and New Zealanders, but again, our patients were older and had comorbid conditions. Um, I think there's a trash heap of medical history. Uh, and it's strewn with the results of trials that we, of interventions that we thought were working and it turned out were not. Um, you know, the, one of the earliest examples is flecainide for arrhythmia suppression after a myocardial infarction. 
A lot of patients got flecainide because it was very effective for suppressing PVCs and brief runs of VTAC, but it was proarrhythmic in other ways. And the randomized controlled trial demonstrated that flecainide was not only not working, it was harmful. All those engineered molecules for sepsis, you know, any, antibodies against TNF and, and LPS and so on. Um, higher PEEP for ARDS, three randomized clinical trials of higher PEEP. Um, there's a suggestion perhaps of some benefit in the French trial on a secondary outcome variable, ventilator-free days, but mortality was not different in any of the studies. And when you add it all up together, do a crude meta-analysis, the difference in mortality in total of 2,300 patients was about 2%. A lot of people were sure higher PEEP was working, but it wasn't. Surfactant for ARDS, and there's another trial, by the way, I have to add to this slide, just, just came out. Um, Doug Wilson uh, published in Critical Care Medicine in the past month, a negative trial of calfactant uh, in adults with ARDS. What about this? Intraortic balloon pumps for patients with an MI and shock. I and mean, cardiologists were doing that for 30 years. They were sure it was helping. One of the amazing things about this study is that they were actually able to do it because that community was really not in equipoise, but I guess they were able to get enough CCUs sufficiently in equipoise to do the study, and it's a negative study. Monitoring gastric residual volumes to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia and now high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. So how many times can we make the mistake of saying, this makes a lot of sense? You know, the rationale is strong. I understand the physiology, let's do it. How many times will we make that mistake and, and use trials without sufficient evidence? I, I think we, you know, we need to subject extracorporeal gas exchange to, um, to the right level of testing before we, uh, we are confident that it's working. And I'm worried about this because it seems to be out of the bag or out of the barn. And a lot of centers are using it um, with confidence um, but instead, what we need to be doing are clinical trials. And I understand there are clinical trials, and this, this medical center is participating. Um, we're on the sidelines. We're going to wait for you guys to tell us whether it really works or not. Okay, so I think um, I'll wrap up at this point with just um, a summary of things to think about when you have a patient with severe ARDS where um, the chest wall is a problem where um, oxygenation is a problem. You know, when, when, if the chest walls, if, if the plateau pressures are high, are high, remember the influence of the chest wall, lower the PEEP. Again, I think that's my best idea in that situation. Remember that 60% of patients survived with a tidal volume of 12, and mean plateau pressures are about 34. And whenever we're pushing the limits and on the edge of the evidence, Stay mindful of what your local resources are. Um, I think when we start doing adventurous things that we haven't done before because we heard about a case somewhere, that's when we're putting our patients at, at harm. A lot of patients with severely impaired gas exchange will turn around if we use conservative approaches. Don't make any mistakes. Use familiar techniques. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr.
Dr. Brower. Um, I'm sure we have some questions in the audience. And let me uh, start out from the fellow's standpoint in managing these, these patients with refractory hypoxemia. Um, how long do you give somebody, uh, I guess, how long do you, does it take for you to determine whether somebody is recruitable or not? Mm -hmm. And what's sort of your threshold? Right. So, so in other words, when you raise the PEEP, how long does it take before you know that there's a response? Correct. Yeah. Um, there's an article in Intensive Care Medicine uh, just several months ago to which I wrote an editorial, and it addresses exactly that question, and it, the answer is within minutes. In fact, um, when you decrease PEEP, which I suggested you do here in a different context, there, within a few minutes. When you increase PEEP, most of the response is over within a few minutes, and then there's a little bit more response when you, uh, to 30 minutes. So it's really pretty quick. So, so you touched on dropping the, uh, the PEEP down to <coughs> pressure. How, how comfortable are you with leaving the PO2 lower than what our typical uh, Another great question. Yeah, so repeating the question, um, how comfortable should we be with a, an arterial PO2 or O2 set that's below our usual goals? You know, in, we usually aim for 88 to 95 percent on the O2 set or 55 to 80. Should, how comfortable should we be, say, with an O2 set of 85 percent or 82 percent? Um, I, I don't have a great answer to that question because we don't have a whole lot of data to base an answer to that. So I, I'm going to say I, I have some discomfort. Um, and also, you, you may know that the neonatologists have had this question on their minds for years, because when preemies get high FiO2, they get this retinitis problem. Uh, and, and neonatologists are pretty sure that if they use a lower FiO2, that, that it'll be less. And they, they, in the past couple of years, two or three years, they've completed and reported both in the New England Journal randomized clinical trials where these preemies either got a usual approach or a lower FiO2 approach where the goal for O2 set was modestly lower. Um, and sure enough, the incidence of retinitis was lower in the patients who got lower oxygen and the mortality rate was higher in babies who had a O2 sat goal in the range of like 85 to 89%. Now, does anybody remember what a, what a fetus's arterial PO2 is? It's about 27 millimeters of mercury. So if anything, you, you, I, I would have expected these neonates to, to laugh off an O2 sat of 85 to 89%. You know, they, they've been living with much less oxygen in their blood than that and thriving in, in, in that environment. Um, but more of them died in both studies with that lower FiO2 and lower O2 set. So I think there is some concern there. But I'll add that I am also worried about oxygen toxicity more than most people are. You know, I think the idea that O2 toxicity doesn't occur at FiO2s below 70%, you know, what's the basis for that? Um, I, I've, I've recently reviewed this literature and there isn't much. In 1946, Julius Comro, one of the great pulmonary physiologists, he, he reports in humans um, breathing high FiO2s for just 24 hours, and his primary outcome variable was chest discomfort. 
So after 24 hours, he reports that if you breathe 100% oxygen, you have chest discomfort. 90%, 80% chest discomfort. At 70%, some of them had some discomfort, some had none. And that, as best I can tell, is the basis for that belief. On the other hand, there are studies in animal models and in humans that show, for example, that an FiO2 of 60% for 44 hours gives you a reduced diffusing capacity. Uh, and, and recent studies coming out of one of our laboratories say that modest levels of oxygen are synergistic with, uh, with modest levels of sepsis to cause a, acute lung injury. In other words, give sepsis alone, L LPS down the trachea, um, you get minimal lung injury. Give 60% oxygen without LPS, minimal lung injury, but give them both together, it's lethal lung injury. So I, I think we should have oxygen toxicity more on our radar screens. We, we tend to sweep it away because first, it's a very inconvenient truth. You know, you have somebody with an O2 sat of 85%, are you gonna ignore that? Are you gonna hold off on oxygen knowing that neonates died with that, with that O2 set? It's hard, it's hard to, uh, to sweep that aside. Um, but I, I think there are times when we could react by lowering FiO2 and PEEP, and we don't react very quickly. You know, when we're escalating therapy, because the O2 sat is 82%, we react quickly. But when the O2 sat is 97%, we, we're very slow. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe some of those patients are getting more oxygen than they need. Um, and it's harming them. Decker. Hi, Roy. Um, thank you. That's great. Mm -hmm. Back to reality sometimes. So we've done a lot of ECMO in the last two or three years up to now. It's kind of interesting to me. I like to use a comment on. We, we get these people when they're three days into it, four days into it. They're over fifteen thousand. <coughs> Um, well, either you're getting patients who are a lot sicker than the ones we get, or our approach to the same patients is very different. And I suspect it's more of the latter. I mean, I, I, we, we've had patients who come in very volume overloaded, and, you know, grotesquely edematous, they look like jellyfish. Um, 
and we um, we'll usually manage them without ECMO. You know, we'll, we'll ultra filter them rapidly and use conservative measures. Now, maybe your outcomes are better than mine because you're using ECMO. I, I don't know. No. Now we won't know Eolia's been grounded because the oxygenator is not being approved. We won't know yet for a while, I guess. So, so that's a temporary thing, or are you worried that it won't resume? It's, it's, the FDA is reconsidering it, but I don't think it's going to happen in the next six months. So we won't get yeah. our randomized trial. And is that affecting Europe? No, that wouldn't affect Europe, right? Eolia is, is, is done in Europe as well as North America, yes? But most of the centers are in Europe, and they're continuing, or are they uh, they are suspended. Yeah, they continue to work. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Thank you.